Hey, 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 and welcome to another episode of An Ordinary King Podcast. Uh, firstly, I'd just like to thank Horizon Studios in St. Kilda for allowing me to host this uh, episode of the podcast. Um, it was amazing fun, great studio, and I really can't wait to uh, do a couple more there. They're, they're a great team. Now, on to the guest. Today, I've got Leo Baker, um, who's an award-winning director, animator, and an author. Uh, he's got a book, hopefully coming out shortly. Great dude, amazing guy. I've had an amazing chat with him. We covered heaps of different topics. Um, I, actually, the episode went for so long, we chatted for so long, that we had, I've had to split this episode into two episodes. So um, uh, check out online for that episode. Um, I don't know. Get into it. He was a great guy. I loved the chat. Look forward to doing it again. Here he is, Leo Becker. So, um, uh, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. Let's just talk about, talk about you to start with, Yeah, I reckon. Um, I guess a good place, the really good place to start is it really obvious, the, uh, is the obvious short films yeah. and your Oscar and, and uh, all that sort of stuff and, and where you're going and, and I guess how that felt and just, yeah. just tapping into some of the, um, the process of it, I guess, and... And then uh, going from there. Cool. So are we we're underway now. Yeah, man. We've, we're, we've been we're, be we're good for. I don't even know. It doesn't say how long. It doesn't I don't have a time code <laughs> on this thing. It just sort of keeps going. So whatever. Cool. 120 tempo. Firing gun has been fired. Underway. <laughs> yeah, mate. Um, all right. Yeah. Well. So short films and the like. So maybe. Okay, so maybe I should do me to back it up and talk about like where that all began. Yep, that's great. In the beginning, <laughs> <laughs> way back when. So I, well, from the very beginning, um, uh, worked in film when I first left school. So I think um, I was working as a um, freelance clap loader yep. um, in camera department. So that was kind of like my, my introduction to the film industry. Um, and, uh, I worked five years in camera, uh, worked on a ton of TV commercials. Um, and I worked on a couple of TV series and a couple of big films. Um, so I think I was working on, I worked on Mission Impossible 2 as a a second assistant camera. Uh, That was when I was 18. And I remember working on set and the first assistant camera focus puller for uh, the the A camera was this, uh, big uh a big american dude who i think he was um i think he was hawaiian yeah he was like this big dude his name's kenny nishino and he was <laughs> and he was in his 60s and i remember him just asking one day he's like how old are you and i said oh i'm 18 and he just laughed and i was <laughs> like oh god and he's like kids <laughs> so yeah so i was pretty young when i did all that but um but that, you know, I learned a lot about, you know, the process of filmmaking and the, on, sure. the on-set language and protocols and all that kind of stuff. It's a language its barrier, thing. isn't it? Yeah. It's definitely a different language. And um, so that informed me a lot, but I didn't really want to pursue camera department. Like I didn't want to become 
focus puller. It's, it's yeah, yeah. like an extremely stressful job. Um, yeah, although I did a little bit of that. Um, I didn't want to become a camera operator or, or a cinematographer because uh, my dad's a cinematographer. And I, whilst I love photography and filming stuff, um, I didn't really want to pursue it as my thing. And um, so I sidestepped into visual effects. I uh, worked whilst working as a um, loader. I worked on a bunch of pretty kind of um, high-end TV commercials that had visual effects components. Yep. And um, I was just sort of like glued to the visual effects guys, watching all the stuff that they were doing. I thought it was pretty fascinating. And um, I ended up sort of sidestepping into working in VFX and having a lot of knowledge about camera and the way cameras work was really worked really well for setting me up into that space because you're essentially rebuilding a lot of scenarios and worlds and um, setups in the computer to replicate components, creating CG elements and, you know, doing compositing. And so having that understanding of the way cameras work and framing and lenses and field of view and all that kind of stuff was, was pretty helpful. Plus the other thing was I was really in pursuit of a more um, creative role, um, creative line of work. Was this something that was just always in the back of your mind as you were going through it? You were just like, yeah. I just want to create? Yeah, well, I mean, when I was at school, I did a lot of painting, did ceramics, did photography. Just, you know, I was one of those kids that slowly shed the sciences and the maths. <laughs> <laughs> I was a shit painter. I was terrible. I was a horrible painter. God, I couldn't draw. I still can't. You were telling me about your stick figures. You just need oh, to keep man. rocking the stick figures. I got stick man. figures down. I reckon I'm going to start doing stick figure crayons and selling <laughs> them. That's that horrible. Um, but you know that could become high art. You know, you never know. Like, don't discount it, man. I'll try not to. I'll um, try not to. So yeah, like, so I was pretty arty farty, is what I'm trying to say. But and then I was all of a sudden doing this, you know, camera and stuff. It was pretty technical. Yep. And I thought going into visual effects would be, would be. Very creative because I thought, well, in visual effects, you know, you can, you can make anything. You know, as far as your imagination extends, you can build that. Yeah. And, um, and so that was kind of what was fueling the fire deep down. But once I got into it, it was a lot of technical learning. I mean, you had to learn all these programs that you know, you know, put, you know, make people break down in tears. They're so complicated. So the 3D programs or compositing programs and yeah. um so that was like a massive learning curve you know um in the university of of my bedroom and a few, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and a few uh books and um this was kind of before the era of uh the university of youtube which uh i'm now a professor of um, how good is it yeah it's pretty amazing there's I, there's um there's videos on youtube of how to fly a helicopter tutorials <laughs> I should look them up. <laughs> <laughs> it's whatever you want to do, man. It's, it's, there's a video for it on YouTube. It's crazy. Yeah, and no, I look up all sorts of weird stuff on there, and it's like, um, uh, you know, I find out. I mean, just yeah. I've, well, I'll talk a little later about the other weird, and wonderful things I've been up to. But mm. if I kind of want to find out, like, in sort of an exact way of going about doing things or, you know, the various different ways of people do things, you, you know, you can find incredible tutorials on there um, or just boffins making stuff and you see how For they sure. do it and it's yep. cool. But, yeah, this was all before all of that, so I kind of had to learn the slow way with books and things, um, which was pretty tedious, but then um, I ended up getting a job working for a visual effects company in Adelaide 
and that was my sort of main foray into VFX. And um, we worked on a bunch of really big Hollywood films, which was um, which was great. But uh, the whole time I was working there, it was just I was just becoming like more and more technical. I wasn't actually sort of getting closer to this creative pursuit that I wanted to do. Mm. And in my mind, I was kind of like, well, you know, I never went to university studying any of this kind of stuff because at the time you sort of there wasn't really any courses available. In fact, one of the reasons why I taught myself is because I heard that there were a couple of courses in Melbourne that taught you know three D computer generated programs but they just um taught obsolete software from tutorials read out of a book and so i thought well maybe i could just read tutorials out of a book of the current software and teach myself and uh yeah anyway so um i did some cool stuff while i was working for that company I, um we did um previs so i was working for it was rising sun pictures was the company i worked yeah for. okay yep and um and then um one of the more interesting things that i did during that time was Worked on Superman Returns. Amazing. Um, which, um, slightly daggy film, but, um, but the, it was a huge budget film. You know, that was like the, the first, you know, reincarnation of Superman. I remember that. <clears throat> I remember it coming out too. Yeah. I remember how excited I was. Yeah. As a kid watching that, I was like, because I love, so I love Superman films, Batman, I'm all, I'm all for it. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I, think I've got, I think I've got Superhero Overload. I have now. Yeah, I feel like every week a new one comes out. Mm. But um, working on Superman Returns was really amazing because um, I kind of, uh, well, I led a team of previs artists uh, and we did previs for pretty much the whole film. Like I'd, I'd say realistically three quarters of the film and that's not an exaggeration. That's crazy. Yeah, so, it's amazing. So obviously for those that don't know, previs is where you do um, very crude, basic and 3D animation um, of the of the scenes of how they're going to play out. So you have all the, all the props and assets and everything as, they, as they're shooting with on, on the actual film. And, you know, originally you do the storyboards and then there's concept art and the art department you know build the sets and design the um environments and mm -hmm. and whatnot um and then we would recreate all those environments in the computer and we would have characters like that were you know on the in the film so we had you know lex luther and superman and lois lane and all these characters and we were composing the scenes with really accurate camera setups you know down to the lenses and the distance from the actors and um it was really like recreating the actual film sets in the computer to quite an amazing detail uh i mean quite frankly i thought it was overkill i thought it was going too far i mean it's just like technically you need to figure something out because you need to build a big set you know and it's a way yeah of yeah for sure figuring out the cost or whatever then that's one thing but um but we were actually sort of getting right into character animation and stuff like this. <laughs> going yeah. a little bit too far with it. Yeah, I remember the director like sort of wanting to see more emotion and so then we're like modifying the character so we could do facial animation, all this stuff. And then I actually felt, I felt bad for the actors because like they'll be on set and they would be, they were being the, shown oh this like God. really crude, kind of shitty animation that we were doing. 
And they'll be like, and they do it like this. Like, see how he like, he staggers and he then looks up and, you know, winces and then falls. And, and it's just like, oh no, really? They're referencing our like... Oh, Jesus. So, I mean, it was kind of an honor for us, but at the same time, I felt a little bit for the actors who, you know, really wanted to bring their own oh personal flair. Oh this, my like, God. And the director's like sold already on the animation. Yeah. So he was really wedded to the, because we were making entire sequences. Oh. So he could watch the sequence and sort of see how it would work. So, um, I mean, we had, you know, entire sequences of the film that we could view. And, and you reckon that there was like three quarters of the film, 75% yeah, no of the joke, film? Yeah, no joke, yeah. So it was, it, was, it was really full on. And we spent months working on that. And, um, <laughs> and there, was, there was a lot. There was like, I mean, there was like, one stage there were like 14 previous artists working full time. Right on. Yeah, it's pretty big. So that was kind of, um, that was pretty significant. But the interesting thing, um, so we're working, at that time we are working with a company called the... Um, Pixel Liberation Front. So yep. they, they were kind of essentially the main guys doing the previews and then um, we supplemented. They couldn't bring all their guys out from LA, so we we supported them. So And then, you know, there was multiple teams of us working there. Um, but um, <clears throat> those guys were talking to me saying that, like, um, they were doing previews as a way to get into directing because... In a way, you were doing that. You were already directing... The scenes yeah, and the actors. You're crafting the scenes. So yeah, it's very yeah. much this visual... St- breaking down this visual storytelling. So from from storyboards to then the, the, you know, the crude animation, you're still figuring out your narrative. You're still figuring out what works. And you're getting an edit. So you're How much of, of that process when you were um, compositing the Superman stuff, did you guys dream up yourselves and then just put forward to the director or did you guys start really crude and then he would say he wanted more of this or that or was there like an amount of um freelance where you guys were just like oh let's make superman do this and sort of see what happens and the director comes back and actually i really like that can we just do this instead or there was a lot of that <laughs> there was a lot of that i mean obviously you get to the point what you you know you Test the waters. You yeah, 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 yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. let's make Superman do this like John Travolta thing here. You, know, you don't, you don't get carried away. Like, you sure, sort of, like, yeah. figure out what's like on theme or on model of what's going on. Yeah, and then um, you know, a lot of the time it was just for like action sequences. Yeah, like, yeah fi- for sure. Figuring out like because action sequences are always hard to choreograph. Like you know, fight scenes and and um, you know, adding drama and just a way of like yeah, making a- it. It's a dance, isn't it? Yeah. So sort of like, because, um, you know, a lot of big fight scenes in films are heavily choreographed and it's tricky to figure out and previews is good for doing that. And so we, we would we would figure that out and then we'd figure out ways of getting, you know, more dramatic camera angles on mm-hmm. bits. You know, we would offer up all, all kinds of different elements and, um, and we would push it. And the more we pushed it, the more that they loved it and we just kept going. So that was really kind of liberating in a way. Gratifying as Gratifying. well. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, um, yeah, so that was kind of, that was fun. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then from there you, you um, the seed of the director seed sort of dropped in and was planted, I guess. Yeah, well, I think it's one of those things. It's funny, like, in Australia, it's sort of like, uh, this, I, just particularly because the way I kind of came up doing stuff with camera and everything it's like I always had this like old school thing hammered into me it's like oh, you got to do your time come up through the ranks you know learn your skills you know kind of like learning a trade you yeah. know doing this apprenticeship style thing and I, I'm all for apprenticeship style learning but 
it's sort of like it doesn't there isn't someone like above you unless you've you know lucky to have someone who's a really kind mentor to sort of go all right you've done your time time to uh promote thyself you know it doesn't doesn't necessarily come I mean sometimes it comes organically but it's sort of up to you to uh to realize what it is that you want to do and when you're going to take that leap to uh advance into a different area and um I just it always felt a long way off uh and I think that was something that I imposed upon myself why do you think that is um I just think it's just the way that I kind of I kind of came up and um I really I mean i I'm always someone who likes to understand how everything works. Sure. So, yeah. like, I, I want to know, I want to understand how, film, like, after working on film sets and things, I want to understand, like, what everyone's job is and how yep. everyone contributes to the whole picture rather than just being fixated on wanting to direct and barking orders. I mean, that's just not who I am. I want to understand how it all works. And, and, that, and that informs what, you know, how I conduct myself or how I would plan a... A shoot or want to do things and um and I think I was I was really hungry to learn yeah and I think that <clears throat> with kind of with you know maturity you um you sort of realize you sort of get comfortable in a certain space and um I, I you know I did find after you know going after doing that previous I went back to continue working in visual effects and I realized that wow this is just this like technical void it's just getting more and more and more technical and, um, and the better you get at it as well, the more sought after. And then things, just, you, all of a sudden, you, 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 it's hard to pull yourself out of that plug yep. and start working in a different field because you become known as that person. Yeah. Well, and that's it, that's very much the case. I've had that a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I, <clears throat> I, um, I realised that I wanted to get more in touch with a creative pursuit. So originally I thought visual effects would be creative after because I did a lot of graphics at school. I nearly went into graphics, graphic design, which I'm yep. kind of glad I didn't because it's actually not for me. But, um, you know, I was, was thinking that that would be, a you know, computers are the modern thing, computers are the future. And, um, you know, I was into filmmaking, I was into computers and I was into art and graphics and stuff. So it seemed like this really cool amalgamation of all those skills. And it was, but... Um, <clears throat> I really wanted to get back in touch with a more creative side. And so then um, before I made the leap into um, wanting to direct my own stuff, I had this urge to make a short film, an animated short film. So within visual effects, I specialised within animation, I suppose. You know, I ended up sort of wanting to work with the animators the most. So I did uh, animation and we did um, a few films where um, we did some key character animation like we did the we did charlotte in charlotte's web the spider yep um and so that was um that was there was quite a lot to learn from that um and then in between jobs which was not really that often off a lot of the time it was back to back never saw the light of day <laughs> <laughs> but in between jobs um you'd be a downtime for like a week or two yeah, i was yeah. always like why don't we make a short film we've got all these talented people here we've got these amazing resources and, uh, and it was kind of poo-pooed because of, I don't know, resourcing or budget allocation or something boring. And um, then um, one of the producers at, at Rising Sun, um, his wife was, um, was, was developing uh, an animated uh, short film adaptation of um, Sean Tan's um, book, The Lost Thing. Crazy. And, and I would fly back with him 
um, his name is Martin Wiseman. I used to fly back with him uh, on the plane to Melbourne to because I'm from Melbourne. So he's fly back and he was he pulled, opened his laptop and he's like, oh, check this out. Look at these character designs. And I was like, wow, that looks amazing. That looks so great. And he's just like, yeah, yeah it's so cool. You know, you, my wife's producing this and, you know, she's just, she uh, she just can't find an animator. And I was like, ding. So hey, I was, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, I know one. I know one who, uh, you know, who, who could be in Melbourne. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, to cut a long story short, I met up with her and she was like, oh, we need to know. You know, we need to rig all these characters, which means like prepare them for animation. So sure. you, you build like a virtual skeleton inside them, um, and various uh, other tools and techniques for deforming the the three dimensional mesh to make it look like they're alive and moving. And um, she's like, we need someone who knows how to rig these characters and then animate them. I'm like, yeah, I can rig characters too. So that stage, I was a bit of a tech nerd and knew how to do all that stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, so then I, she handed me a hard drive and. And that was that. And so then I went away, actually took it back to Adelaide and was sort of doing it on the side. Crazy. Um, and, uh, and then on weekends and things. And, um, yeah, started shipping away and did this sort of the one end sequence of the Lost Thing film, which is the, this sort of super colourful crescendo of the film, which has all of these crazy, weird and wonderful characters mm-hmm. all come together in this, yeah, wonderful ending. And... Um, but that was one of the biggest challenges was, was rigging all these characters and bringing them to life. So I um, slowly chipped away and I actually did it on a Mac laptop running. This is a little bit of tech speak. Sorry. Just, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. It was an old shitty Mac laptop yep. that I had a, a, like a boot camp thing with um, running Windows on it. And I was running uh, Softimage XSI, the software that we used. And I had that running on this old clapped out laptop and I just did it bit by bit. And slowly built it up. Jesus. And, yeah. uh, and then ended up with this end sequence. And then they used that end sequence to secure funding from Screen Australia to um, fund the rest. And I thought that was going to be like, then they were going to bring on a bunch of other animators. And they're like, so you want to animate the rest? And I was like, what, just me? And they're like, yeah, you know. And I was like, okay. So moved back to Melbourne and um, slowly chipped away at animating the rest of the film, um, which uh, took... I think the best part of three years. Today. Jeez, right like on. Probably two and a half years, maybe, and then and then there was a bit of you know extra stuff at the end. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I was working with one other guy, a guy named Tom Bryant, who worked remotely from Scotland. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that was kind of crazy. So, um, but we we would split the workload, and it was a really neat split. So yep. Tom would um, he modelled all the characters and environments and did all the texturing lighting and rendering so he was very much a look development kind sure. of guy yeah. and then I brought everything to life so I did all the rigging animation um, you know previs uh, animatics and then and then all the final animation and one thing I insisted on is I insisted on uh, doing the edit of the film because I thought if I'm going to be doing all this animation I don't want somebody else making these edit decisions and the work ending up on the cutting room floor so I thought if I do the edit, I can figure out exactly how much I need to animate and I, oh, yeah, yeah, and I could okay. animate it to the frame yeah, yeah, so yeah. there was no work wasted. Um, normally when you do a shot in animation or visual effects, you do handles where you have like you animate an additional like typically eight frames or so sure. either side so you can shift it or shunt yeah. it around in the edit. 
but I didn't even, didn't even animate handles because I was like, no, nah, that's exactly to the cut, <laughs> to the frame, <laughs> frame. frame. exactly to the frame, precise, <laughs> <laughs> crazy, yeah. So that was um that was crazy. So that that film, um, that film was extremely successful. So yeah, did toured around the world, did the festival circuit, and did did very well. It won a lot of awards. Um, the the real party starter was um, winning the um, the 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 uh, Annecy Crystal at the Annecy Film Animation Film Festival. So won you know best short film essentially. Um, sure. And um, that's a huge accolade. And uh, unfortunately, didn't get to go to that. I would love to go. I still haven't been to Annecy, which is kind of like any other animators listening will go shame on you. But uh, I would. Were you hoping that they were going to do like a little invite, send you a little envelope in the mail? We would love for you to attend and do a seminar. <laughs> well, Did none, they? Of the, none of the Melbourne crew actually went because it was oh, quite sudden. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, they can be though with festivals, yeah. can't they? Yeah. And um, so, uh, so we won that and then that was kind of like a really big deal and then won a bunch of other festivals and then eventually ended up um, in consideration for the Academy Awards and... How long story short, it uh, won the Best Academy Award in 2011 for Best Animated Short Film. So that was... Uh, How was that? It was, it was exciting. It was pretty stressful kind of getting there. It's a pretty big build-up to get there. But um, we were one of the first categories. I think it was like the second or third category. And apparently... <laughs> sort of weird like it's surreal going to the Oscars mm-hmm. you, you go there and you've got the penguin suit on and there's all these celebrities and <clears throat> look no one cares about you at all like they only care about the celebrities you know for you, sure you'll get shoved along that red carpet because there's a celebrity coming through get out of the way mate <laughs> <laughs> and then uh yeah okay righto and um uh we were we were like second or third category up and then we won and it's surreal and you can't believe it. And then we all just looked at each other and we're like, let's just go to the bar. And, uh, we did and <laughs> stayed at the bar. From that point <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So we never went back in and got a sore bum sitting there for eight or 10 hours. It's or a long time. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So, um, we had, we had something to celebrate. So, uh, so we did that. Yeah. That's crazy. Do you get a bar tab for winning something? Do they give you like, well, not not at the actual event because, um, yeah, I think you know one round of drinks, you know, just about maxed my credit card at the uh, at the event. It was very expensive, but um, <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating. But it was yeah, it was expensive there. But basically, as soon as you, if you win, it's like it's this golden ticket. You can go anywhere and do anything that night. Sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. So we just we just went on to the fanciest parties and. You know, this, Rode the wave. Yeah, and it were, you know, where everything was free. So uh, it, was, it was fun. Good night. <laughs> yeah. <A> good week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It was surreal. I was actually really sick at the time. Oh, and, no, um, yeah, yeah. I got really crook. Like, I just was a bit of a stressful ordeal getting there. And I was staying at a friend's place. And um, their kids, well, I love their kids. They're, they're so gorgeous. And they, they bounded up to see me as soon as I arrived and jumped on me and then just like went and coughed straight in my face and I was like immediate oh. infection yeah. yeah so after having like you know sitting on the airplane for 14 plus hours next to, next to some obese dude with a chest infection you know oh which is lovely then uh, having the little kids cough me I got really crook so then like, and the event was like a day or two later so I was like right at the premium point mm, of feeling like feeling good dog meat yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I was so bad when I got to the event I said well 
I, like, I'm, I'm freaking dying. Like, I need to go and find, there's got to be a medic here. And they're like, no, no, there's no medic. I'm like, come on. Come you got on. all these celebrities here and there's, there's no medic. N- yeah. I'm like, and so they had to take me downstairs into the- The basement. You know, yeah, into the celebrity area. Yep. And they were like, your security, like, hawk-eyeing me the whole time. And I'm like, mate, I just feel like shit. I just need some pseudo-overdrink. I'm not here to cause any trouble. And, uh, yeah, they gave me something and it's helped a bit. But really, the whiskey later on helped the most. Yeah, boy. Yeah. Crazy, <laughs> yeah. and that, and that was that. And then, um, and what are you up to now? Because you've done you've done a couple of short films there. The doco's done really well. The doco's doing good. Yeah, so that was a, that was a hard flog, wasn't it? You were you were talking about that yeah, being quite it difficult. Was, it was. Yeah, it was a certainly was a labour of love. But well, since that time, I <clears throat> I kind of had this realization that you know I I was just getting hungrier and hungrier for doing my own. Um, creative pursuits so I mean I guess writing or directing or whatever but it's not so much about the title it's just about creating something yeah telling a story telling a story so I think um, you know we were talking the other day about you know it's really hard to you meet someone socially or whatever and they go oh you know so what do you do for a living and it's not really an easy thing to encapsulate in a no no it's not especially if you don't if you don't specialize it's not like because you're not you're not just like a focus puller or an animator or you know or a set builder or carpenter or your whatever you sort of need to be at the time to convey your message that you want to get across or or facilitate the interest that you have yeah that's another thing sometimes you don't even have a message you're just like i'm just really interested in that and you just want to sort of facilitate that need to fulfill that desire to complete that new thing and yeah because you've got this itch kind of inside of you well i mean i i think that 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 itch and that that curiosity has certainly driven me to explore many facets of uh you know, I think I, I want to ultimately want to live a creative life. And I don't mean that to sound fluffy, but it just, um, I, I have, you know, pursued these interests. And I think probably the one of the easier ways to define who I am and what I'm doing is I just want to be a storyteller. Yep. And, um, and so, uh, you know, I'm exploring different mediums of storytelling. Um, I think I do really love the film medium, but, you know, let's face it, it's pretty challenging in Australia, you know, like it, it, people think it's a glamorous industry, but, um, you know, like, you know, we all like to eat sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, before I kind of, um, got, um, riddled with pessimism, I, uh, I, yeah, I, did some experiments with short films, you know, trying to do my own yeah, stuff. Yeah. So um, I'd made two short films, which were both live action, which was, you know, quite a departure from, you know, visual effects and animation and all this other stuff that I was sort of known for. And, um, um, you know, after doing The Lost Thing, you know, there weren't really any great opportunities that came my way immediately. Um I mean, I could have gone to work for one of the big animation companies overseas, maybe. I mean, I actually tried to get into, I think, Pixar, but I think that, you know, my animation skills probably weren't up to scratch to get in there. I thought, oh, I'll try because Pixar's awesome. Right. But, uh, you know, it was you know, it just wasn't the right fit. And it's cool that they recognised that. They said, oh, well, you know, you could, we could probably put you in this department. And I was like, no, I think I really want to be in animation, but... You know, I don't actually. Like, it's not. It's not. Animation's not the be all and end all for me. You know, it's. It's. Um. 
And I realized that I had always been working on other people's creative ideas. Yeah. And it reaches a point where you kind of have to, you have to sort of prioritize what it is that you want to do. If that means saying no to other people's, you know, work offers, um, then it's actually, it's, it's a tough decision sometimes. It's sort of a bit of a bold thing. Was there a light bulb moment for you? Like a specific moment where you're like, today, like you woke up today and you were like, I, I can't do other people's stuff anymore. And today's like, you start working towards the things that, that, that fulfill you as a person. Um, it wasn't really like a light bulb moment, but I found myself growing increasingly, uh, not really frustrated, but, you know, I'd work on things and, you know, you're, you're, you're working for, you know, a captain steering the ship, you know, yep. a director or someone else doing something. And I'd, I'd be working for these other people and this was in a variety of other projects and bits and pieces I worked on. And it comes a point where you're like, I could do this or oh, <laughs> I could do better than this. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, not to sound like a smart ass, but you just have that realisation. It's just like, you know, you feel comfortable in that space. And, and then I thought, well, what really is, you know, I'd always been in that kind of production sort of space, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, everything had been kind of got to a certain level and then I'd been employed to be brought in to help, you know, see it through. And I was good at doing that. Um, but if you distill everything down, it, it all comes down to the story, to the concept to begin with. Sure. And so that's really the most important thing. And I think it took me a little while to realise that, that that is what was important and that was what I was really excited about. But it was actually a whole new learning curve because then I had to realise, well, you know, if I want to create my own stuff, then I've, I've really got to learn how to write. And, you know, I've got a, I've got a brain. I've, you know, I'm intelligent enough to be able to, to write things. But, you know, it's not anyone can just crack into being a writer. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to know. There's a lot of, uh, you know, you can write something and then you sort of read it back and you go, that is just so on the nose and <laughs> cheesy ass, you know. You're yeah. like, you're like, oh my god, who wrote that shit? Yeah, I think I think for me, I I completely agree with you. I think for me, the um one of the secrets, or not even a secret, God, I don't really believe in secrets to be honest. With like, you know, the secret recipe for a good writer is, but I just think it's the the ability to persevere and edit, mm. because the the first yeah. thing you that you spit out there, because it's just about getting it out getting yeah. that whatever that concept or idea is, <clears throat> getting it out. I think it's always the second or third draft that's painstaking and you yeah. you feel like you're rehashing stuff or whatever and, yeah. and maybe not getting anywhere, but you're just cleaning it up. Yeah. And the first draft always feels like dog shit. Yeah. It feels terrible. It's too raw. It's so raw. Yeah. I used to have this thing where I was like, I'm totally a first draft writer. Mm. Where I would just like spit out the first draft and I'm like, no, that's it, done. I don't even do spell check. I don't do anything. Yep. That's it. That's all you get. And fuck, that's a hell of a mistake. Because like, <laughs> yeah. you're just putting rubbish out. Yeah. You know, no one cares. No one cares. Well, I've also learned that like, you know, with any idea, with the process of any ideas, incubation time is really important. Yep. So incubation time for that first round. Of mm-hmm. getting something out so you actually get formulate something that's got you know a problem or an inciting incident or something or a beginning a middle and end you know and you, you craft something that's there um but then sometimes you need to just park it and just let it sit mm-hmm. and just you need to just recalibrate and then you come back and you look at it and you can see where all the shit is 
and you go, oh, well, yeah, that's got to be tidied up. Well, you know, I could skip from that bit to that bit. And you know, the editing process is a lot easier. And I found that recently with what I've been doing because um, I have been writing this uh, novel. Which yeah. Is a, um, it's like a kid's adventure story, which uh, I don't want to talk about too much because it's not yet out there, but I'm determined to get it out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, only, I've only just started approaching publishers and I want to, I want to try and do it the traditional way of getting it um, nice. published. Yeah. Um, I mean, failing that, I could always self-publish, but um, I guess I want to try and challenge myself with the discipline of getting something that is you know, commercially viable, but you know, it, more to the point is, is interesting and will, people want to read it and it's fun and you know, it matters the most to me because this is actually the first time after all these years that I've done something that's pure fiction. And it's like, this is actually what I was always meant to do. And this is what, you know, I'm finally getting to the point here, <laughs> what I've always wanted to do, you know, what I've always been working towards. Yeah. And the reason why I, I chose to do that as a novel is because it's a very, I think very visually. And so originally I wanted to do it as like an animated concept or a... Uh, a, you know, a live action supplemented with visual effects. Sure. Because it has this fantasy element to it. Yep, yep. Um, and, um, and then I thought, you know, if I do that as a screenplay and I try and pitch that, I could spend years trying to get that up and running. So I thought, what's the way I just need to, after making a series of short films and this feature length documentary, which I'll talk about in a minute, you know, I was just kind of like, it's so dependent upon other people and dependent upon money and resources yeah, and, yeah. and all this stuff. I just thought, I need to strip all that away and I need to just get to the essence. Um, and discovering that and finding out what that essence was, which is storytelling, just, just pure storytelling, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to not do it as a screenplay, not that format. I'm going to try and write it in a novel format so that I can um, – I can allow myself the descriptive writing, which you don't get that luxury with a screenplay. It's you know, just dialogue and action, typically. Um, and that way I could write visually, I suppose, and then I would have one thing. The only dependency is me and a word processor once it's done, and then I could hand it to someone and then they could get into my head and see yeah, see, see the creative sure. idea and they yep. could build, build the picture. Because I think if something is well-written in that format, people build you know, the appropriate picture in their head. And I think that's one of the hardest things in a creative pursuit is that translation of an idea from my head to your head. <coughs> the articulation of yeah. your, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. Uh, that's where things often get, you know, misinterpreted. You know, if you're pitching an idea and, it, you know, perhaps you don't communicate it well or people don't see the vision, it's just a misfire, you know, and um, it's a shame. Or people like it and they want to change it. Yeah, they want to model it, you know. But yeah. I, I think maybe with a book, putting a book out there, it just it feels more concrete because it's something that stands alone on its own, yeah. regardless of, of what happens uh, afterwards with you turning into a film or, or yeah. whatever next. Yeah. But you've, you've, there's, there's less chance of, a, of someone coming on and saying, oh, maybe we should do this or change the hero of the thing to this or, yeah. you know, it's more of a, um, oh, that's your idea, cool, I like it. It's already got a following, people like it. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the, the rationale behind it. It's it, a good it one. makes it a lot easier. Um, I mean, pu getting something published has its own challenges because the publishing world has changed quite a lot. Yeah, um, right. And um, just a lot of the major publishing companies have got less staff. Um, you know, there's there's different laws now about you know, um, oh, you know, works being reproduced internationally, and you know. 
there was I think when you know the advent of um, you know ebooks came out, everyone kind of freaked out and thought that you know that was going to be the future and it was a lot cheaper and that was that was how everyone was going to consume that media but it's kind of it's sort of settled down there's certain people who really like you know reading stuff on a kindle because they they travel or they don't want to have a bookshelf full of books um and then there's certain people who want to um you know sit on the beach and get sand in their books i think i think a lot of people that still have kindles still have books as well i think if you're a reader you're a reader yeah. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I still haven't got a Kindle. I kind of, I think I want one. Yeah, because of the boat. travel. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I have an iPad, um, and I just don't like reading stuff off it. Yeah, no, I don't. It's hard. Same with the computer. I don't like reading stuff off the computer. But yeah. I think a Kindle, you sort of looks at it, it, sort of looks kind of okay. I just, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll try that out. One well, it's day. not. I mean, they're not a backlit screen. They're, they're like. Um, it's like an Etch-a-Sketch sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's weird. Like it's different. Yeah, it's amazing. I yeah. think the technology is amazing and it does look good. Like you, if you go into like whatever the store, you know, and you see the ones they have on display, it looks pretty good. But yeah. I don't know, there's something about, for me, there's something about pages. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I don't know, paper cuts. I don't know, the smell, <laughs> yeah. dust. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the You know, the ever-growing population of books on my bedside table yeah. <laughs> is yeah. overcoming everything else. They're your friends. They're company. <laughs> <laughs> They're company, right? It's, uh, I, I don't know. There's something about books that I love. Yeah. I've only just started getting back into reading, actually. Like, I've always been um, a big reader, but... Oh, you go through phases. Yeah. I, I think my taste is... My taste has definitely changed. Like I, um, I started the uh, a guy I worked with years and years ago. Like when I was like eighteen, nineteen, he gave me a Charles Bukowski book mm-hmm. to read, and I think that really hooked me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Woman, and that's an incredible. And I was just sick and tired of trying to trying to read books where I was getting three, five, ten pages into it and just getting sucked into too much dialogue, too much a writer using a. a a lexicon that was far greater than mine was ever going to be with, yeah. you know, and then finally finding a, a writer that was like to the point, you know, yeah. as crude as it was, it was like opened another door for me <clears throat> um, and what my interests were. And I don't know, it was just, and just to find that there's this stuff like that out there. I just, I loved that. And so, I, but, but I think over the years, my, as my vocabulary has grown, um, and my desire for different stories has grown as well. I think I've started branching out into bigger books, mm. what I call my mother's books, <laughs> ones that she would read. And I just, I would put aside and like, I don't want to read that because my mother reads it, you know, like your Catherine Cooks and whatever. And I just thought, thought they were boring, but damn it, they're good writers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damn it, they're good. I, uh, they're good books. When I was a really little kid, this is a bit of a weird response tangent to what you just said but when i was a really little kid i thought that uh adults spoke a different language and so that when you grew up <laughs> you you learnt this different language yeah <laughs> i'm talking very little kid here <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah so the, the whole thing of vocabulary yeah i i get it i mean That's i got charlie the, brown syndrome you yeah. charlie brown all you're hearing <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly one day i'll know what they're saying one day i'll know um I yeah I go through phases with reading where I I, I just can't get enough and I just do books back to back but um it's sort of got a, it's it's relative to what's going on in your life like if you've got a lot you know mm. a lot happening d- demanding on your mental 
attention. Um, sometimes you just don't have the headspace for it. Um, I go through phases with movies as well where I'm kind of consuming a lot of movies and then sometimes I just don't watch... I don't watch a lot of TV. I watch, you know, some subscription TV where you can get directly to the point. Um, can't, can't Skip the ads? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not a fan. Occasionally some good ads, though. Occasionally, like, a good commercial will pop up. They're pretty rare where mm-hmm. a company will want to take the risk of, like... Mm-hmm. Going outside the box and not yeah, branding in, the commercial. But aside from that, you're just getting yelled at. You're like, oh, man. And they say that the volume doesn't increase. They say it's the same. It's not the same. The volume goes oh, up. The volume's the same, but the loudness, like the compression. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. They crank, they compress the bejeebas out of it. So it's horrible. It comes through louder. It's horrible. Yeah. Why can't they fix that? I'm sure they could fix it. Oh, oh, anyway, but I, I, I agree. That. We don't have a TV at our house. One, we don't have room. We don't have anywhere to put it. We've got this giant big French oak dresser that we bought. And that takes up 90% of the space <laughs> in, our, in our, like our apartment lofty sort of open plan living sort of situation. And there's just no room for a TV. So everything we watch is on laptops. Or we go to the cinema if we watch a film. I see nothing wrong with that. We're all right we with it. love the cinema. It's great. Mm. We've, and I don't know, I've seen some really good, I've seen some rubbish films recently, but I've seen some really good ones and they are so different. Like I remember watching Gravity at the film, at the cinema, and it's such a different experience to watching it on a screen. It's, it's such an immersive, I think I would have loved to have seen that film at IMAX. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the one at the Melbourne Museum, I think that's where it is. Yeah. So immersive. It would have been. It would have been incredible to watch that there. Something like that. By the way, I saw Roma. Oh, you did watch it. Yeah, all right. It. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What'd you? How'd you go? Yeah, well, I mean, the beginning, I was kind of like, all right, this is pretty art house, you know, like not really any clear inciting incident, you know. It's kind of I'm like, oh, persevere, you know, and then um, apart from the dog shit. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a lot of symbolism all the way through. Little airplanes, dog shit bits and pieces um mm. but um i absolutely loved it at the end i was yeah i was very invested and um yeah i get i get it you know like i really do like it's just, just a story about people like no one's life's perfect everyone's life's a little is very much imperfect a little bit chaotic and all over the place and um it's just this amazing human element to it it and, does it does capture that really well yeah spoilers Oh, is there is there such a thing now? As how long has it been out for? Fuck, I don't know. It's pretty. I I um, after I watched it, or we, well, we both after we both watched it. I can't remember. Did we watch it? The oh, we, it was Netflix. After we watched it, because when we watch a film, we like to sit there and then process. Mm-hmm. And because it's not an overly there's no clear, like, strong themed sort of narrative, you know what I mean? Like, there's no real, I mean... At least in the beginning, it's not Yeah, really she, I mean, yeah. she goes through a hell of a hell of a time, like, but I think it was, the, for me, it was definitely, like, upon reflection. It's something that I really want to watch a second time, and mm. I don't often say that about films. Yeah, I felt the same. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think there's a lot of things that I probably missed... Or I would see quite differently the second time round. Um, 
a lot of themes, like little, because there's micro themes throughout it, I think, like you said, like little symbolisms yeah. that you pick up. And some are quite blatant, I think. Um, <laughs> but I, I liked it. I just, I just, I felt, I think this is the problem, like, as well with not to bag Netflix or anything, but you, it doesn't allow you to sit there and, 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 sustain the credits and 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 process what you've just watched like you can at the cinemas because it just blasts you with the next watch this next you know immediately oh, after no, the films yeah. it frustrates me and and i think i was i felt a little bit robbed of of my uh my thinking time of my processing yeah. time a little bit i actually um i jumped on imdb mm-hmm. afterwards and um you know how they have that little trivia parameter yep and I read all the trivia bits and pieces about the film and that, that was really cool. It sort of, it said that, you know, it was about, um, the directors, um, the woman who worked, like he came from a relatively well off family and it was about the servant who worked in, in his house when he was growing up, the, you know, maid servant. In, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it's like, he it said it was like 90% accurate to the real story. And, uh, it talked about all the symbolism and, uh, various bits and pieces and the fact that, because I think the main reason why I looked it up is because I wanted to know why it was called Roma and it's the suburb that it's set in Mexico City and I didn't realise that. I was like, was it, is it Tomatoes? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm like, Tomatoes, is it her name? Was it the child's name? You know, like, you know, I didn't know why and then, uh, yeah, it's the, it was the setting. It's the suburb. The suburb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it talks about the aeroplanes. Um I think what I think for me the the biggest like I think he the most amazing thing about that film for me was the sequences like individually uh like the birthing sequence spoilers yeah yeah it's incredible yeah I know that I mean I choked watching that yeah that was full on it was gripping yeah gripping stuff yeah you know and then and then at the same time uh there's another sequence I'll try not to ruin it for everyone else, but the 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 mass population sequence with the department store, and it just feels mm. glossed over in comparison to like the birthing sequence, and it's just like this real sort of push and pull of like individual focus. You know what I mean? Like on, mm. on a human level, because those those events are so because ma- that was a massive event in mm. in Mexico yeah. that happened. And it was it, amazing how the how it was done on film. Like it was it was very convincing. And it was like very convincing. Single shots are kind of pan, like looking out the window at all this chaos outside and everything. And I was like trying not to try to figure out how do they do this? Is that visual effects? I'm, I'm trying to like, <laughs> People, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm like, whoa. I'm trying to break it down. I'm like, no, no, just be in the moment. Just watch it. Enjoy it. You know. Oh, it's hard though, isn't it? Sometimes it's really from impressive. Film. Yeah. Yeah. That that that's that's. So I don't know. I was kind of impressed with it. And then, um, and there's some other things that I don't know if I was disappointed or just wanting something else than just, you know, but then I found myself fighting the, the, my, what I personally want out of the film. And I'm like, I just got to stop like trying to like pressure Mm. films into delivering something that I want delivered. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And just, and just let the film be how it is. And that's exactly, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it and reflecting, maybe that's just what the film is. It's like, well, life is just like that. And you either love it or you don't. If you don't, well, tough. That's what you get. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I find so impressive is, so gravity was a massive international success. Huge. It cleaned up 
you know, awards and all the rest. And, um, you know, after so much success, you know, you can, the director, you know, you've got your pick of what you want to do. And, um, you know, instead of going on to make, you know, some other huge blockbuster type thing straight away, he, he went on to make this. And um, I think that's, and this was what he wanted to make. And, you know, let's face it, in the eyes of like Hollywood executives, this is not their, would, I imagine it would not be their first choice of a moneymaker. And that's why he chose to release it on Netflix is because it would get a broad audience, not just select art house cinemas and things like that for yeah, the intellectual yeah, types that would go along and see it. Um, it would be available for anyone to see because he wanted anyone and everyone to see it. Um, so I think that's kind of like really admirable about staying true to what he wanted to do as a as an artist. And uh, I think that's amazing. I mean, that, that really resonated with me. I was like, oh, man, respect. And it was just a story that he really wanted to tell. It's an amazing story. Yeah. I'm pretty keen to watch it again. Yeah. I definitely watch it again. Oh, far out. Yeah, it was really cool. <clears throat> yeah, so that, that, that resonated with me because, you know, yeah, it's like with my own my own pursuits, you know, you kind of you realize what matters, you know, what what it is that you want to want to do, you know. And I kind of you know, there are various stories that I I have in development and they're things that I think would be really great stories and I really want to tell and I kind of I just really want to get them to a point of development that I can show them to people and shop them around and um one thing I really fearlessly I, shop them around <clears throat> as well. Yeah, but I find it I, you know I've been to America many times and, I, you know, they're very, they're very direct with uh, that kind of um, uh, looking at material and that kind of, you know, I go over there and say, oh, you know, I'm Leo, I've, you know, I've worked in, in uh, film, different areas of film, I've worked in animation and documentary and visual effects and blah, 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 and, you know, I'm working as a writer-director and I try and do my elevator pitch, which just never really comes easy. And, uh, and then all they want to know is, like, what have you got? You know, what have you got? Like, have you got, have you got any scripts? Have you got any material? You know, and it's like, it doesn't mean shit to go. Oh well, you know, I've got this idea. I've been thinking about it for a while. It just has no weight. It doesn't no, mean anything. No, you can't. You can't own. And you can't own an idea. Yeah. So you really need to have something to show, and that's that's something that I've been very aware of. And so, you know, I have had these ideas. I have been sitting on them for a while, and I don't like to talk about them until I can show them, because otherwise, it's just kind of lame. It's just talk. It doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, good. So um, I just that's that's something that really drives me is I don't want to be a lame ass, you know, always, <laughs> always talking about stuff, you know, saying, "Oh yeah, I'm doing this," and it's like, "Yeah, I've been saying you've been doing that for years." Like, you know, let's get it done. Let's let's do it. Let's get some progress. Let's so, take some risks. Yeah, and so I kind of um, it means that there's going to be you know many hours chewing away on the laptop typing this stuff out, but you know. It's important, and I think the f ultimate feeling of satisfaction of getting it to a certain presentable point will feel really good, you know, like genuinely presentable, you know, beyond yeah, that yeah, raw yeah, first draft. Yeah, 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 just an A4 piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and because I think, I was telling you about this the other day, because like, cause I, I do think really visually, I do want to create, you know, whether, it, whether the presentation is a novel format or a screenplay format, sure. which, excuse me, I am developing um, both both uh, formats um, I do want to uh, create sort of auxiliary pitch documents to go with them so that can sort of have supporting imagery and uh, other 
other sort of treatment development of the idea to add visual context and a way I would go about um, converting it to a different medium such as film and um, just to help with that communication again of how I would translate that into that medium. Because it all differs, do you find it differs from project to project is what that project's needs of delivery is and how you you pitch that delivery, how you pitch that project to someone uh, changes how you will show them what it is whether it yeah definitely i mean uh, for me you know because i was well just to sidestep a tiny bit here like i, I was always known as an animation person and then, sure. I, then i made a documentary and people were like hang on aren't you an animation person i'll be like well yeah i have worked in animation but like you know I'm, I'm not really pigeonholed by any of that it's just to me animation is not a genre it's a medium yep and so like it's it's the right it's about choosing the right medium for a concept because I mean, not every concept you write, you could make into an animated film. Like it, it seems silly. That's why the two short films that I made were live action because they, they were, the first one was an exercise in, in writing dialogue. Um, and I just wanted to see if I could create some witty banter between three people in different scenarios in a car. And, um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was like a foray into, into doing that. And sure. And, and it was interesting. And then the second short film was um, was playing with a romantic concept about it's it's a short film called Love Notes, which is about um, essentially two blind people who move into the same neighbourhood and they they are both musicians and the way that they discover each other or see each other is by um, hearing each other play music at night time when the rest of the world is going to sleep, and so they then you know essentially a wanting to connect or wanting to find each other and, and um, you know, it's all that really can be shown in a short film is this, this sort of setup of this potential um, future between these two. And, um, but that, you know, that was a, I think to connect with people emotively, they needed to see humans beat people. Being so, humans, yeah. yeah. And so that was a live action thing. And then you know, <clears throat> a documentary is a, essentially you know it's non-fiction. So then you've got to be very truthful to to facts and, re- and reality, and you've got to search out archives and um, supporting information. And How did you come across the story of your documentary? Um, so um, the producer Katie Bender was um, on the uh, aerial ski team with Lydia Lassila, and um, she was good friends with her. And so Katie was um, developing and producing. The, uh, the film and um, I'm, we teamed up and, um, and yeah, gave her a hand to sort of um, see it all the way through, which was <laughs> several years in the process. And uh, we, we went overseas um, filming. So I, I shot, you know, most of, you know, 90 plus percent of what is, is seen in the film because um, it was, you know, documentary style shot on sure, a DSLR, yeah, yeah. not playing it down, but, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's shot well, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a different demands, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and it's about capturing the moment and the, yeah. the realness of it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I shot the material and then um, and then we directed it together. So we kind of did everything together. Yeah. And, um, producing and directing and the rest. But, um, yeah, so the film was called The Will to Fly. It's a, a feature-length documentary. It's about the life and sport career of Lydia Lassler, who's an Australian um, female Olympic aerial skier. She won the, um, the gold medal in the 2010 Vancouver Olympics. 
and then she had a baby and decided to return to the sport as a mum, uh, which in itself is a, is a big deal because it's very dangerous. For well, sure. There are dangers, you know, it's kind of like they're throwing themselves, you know, 50 feet in the air off, uh, you know, this ice ramp doing all these flips and twists and um, trying to land on their feet, not on their head. And um, she decided to return to the sport as a mother to perform a trick that, you know, a manoeuvre that no woman had ever performed before, which was um, a jump that only the men had performed before. So there was quite a... um, performance gap between the level of acrobatic skill that the men were performing in competition and what the women were doing. Mm -hmm. And Lydia's argument was, um, you know, there's nothing physically that, that separates men and women from being able to do this because it's acrobatic skill. It's not brute strength. It's not like women aren't big and strong enough to do it. Um, it's, uh, it's just acrobatic skill and the precision and calculation of doing it, which um, she believed that, you know, women had every capability of doing. And so then at the Sochi Olympics in 2014, she built up to performing this quadruple twisting triple somersault, which she did on the Olympic stage. And so the document, the documentary chronicles, you know, her journey towards doing that. So it's like a classic, classically constructed hero's journey it's sure. just a kick-ass sports film. You know, it's female empowerment, you know, uh, real kick-ass go-get-em film. And, um, you know, it's got a lot of uh, – it's not just, you know, sport porn. It's like um, – it's there's a real human story behind that to do with, you know, um, family and, uh, you know, sense of obligation of family and, and balancing work and life and career and that kind of thing. And um, – we created this um, auxiliary impact campaign to go with the film, which really uh, it was a way of it was a way of like um, broadening the reach of the film and making sure it connected with um, an audience in the best way possible. Um, where we tried to like you know use it to raise awareness about the importance of female participation in sport or sure. youth participation in sport. And the correlation between um, uh, leadership in sport and leadership in the corporate space, particularly for women, and uh, yeah, female empowerment, as I had mentioned, and gender equality themes, because you know she was trying to do as the men did. So you know, showing equal capabilities and that kind of thing. Because you mentioned, I remember when we um, caught up in chat, you you mentioned this. I can't remember if it was a stat, but this um, startling correlation between. Um, successful women sport or athletes yeah. and CEOs of, of companies. Yeah, so I can't quote this exactly, but I did remember um, researching that in the US, it was like 93% of female CEOs have a, had a background in sport. It's crazy. Yeah, so that's just a correlation of, you know, you know, the, I guess it's a, it, elements of, you know, competitiveness of um, determination yep. of leadership all of these kind of qualities that um, that correlate and uh, I mean I think it makes sense yeah so. there's a lot of elements that they share a lot of similarities like being successful in a corporate 
um, or looking after a company as a CEO and, and like having that drive, just the ability to get up in the morning, five o'clock in the morning and train. Yeah. You know what I mean? Is when you're a kid to teenager to adulthood and, and wanting to succeed in, in a sport environment, not just doing it because you want to catch up with your mates or yeah. or do something because your mum and dad told you that you had to do it or it's part of your school curriculum, but it's yeah. because yeah, you love driven. it. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think it's I think it's I think it's deeper than love as well because there's <clears throat> like I, I played sport um, to a pretty high level through school um, until I was injured um, both golf and hockey and sometimes like one of our coach trainers was a uh, triathlon biathlon kind of forty fifty k run kind of dude you know what I mean like mm-hmm. a coast to coast is what he did so it's the west coast of New Zealand uh, South Island <clears throat> and you run cycle and kayak across to the east coast mm-hmm. across mountains glaciers uh, rivers desert all kinds of stuff so do kayaking instead of swimming because the water's so cold <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think I think they do kayaking because they go through gorges and uh, and if you swam through it, you'd probably like get stuck in an eddy or get crushed between a rock and a waterfall or something like that. Where if you right. kayak, you can float. New uh, Zealand is extreme. It's pretty extreme, <laughs> yeah. You, you just it's a it's it's pretty amazing, pretty amazing place. But um, sorry, I've distracted you there. No, yeah. but I th- but I think with like again, I think like being able to. Um, being able to just ride those extremes and and not try to conquer them, but just but just sort of live with those extremes that have, um, equips you with the ability to handle knockbacks really, you know what I mean? Like, and, and the, the pressure moments and the, and the hard work moments, the getting up when you don't want to get up in the cold mornings and, yeah. and well, put the work and the hours in. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing that was so, I thought was so great about Lydia's story is, um, it, there's, there's extreme highs and there's extreme lows. Like her mm. story if you break it down, it's like it's littered with problems, which makes for a good story, you know. Doesn't it? And, um, you know, she has these almighty setbacks. You know, she um, she was like the favourite to win the 2006 Olympics, but she blew her knee out on the Olympic stage, which was like this like horrific, gory event that she still to this day has difficulty watching. Um, but after all of that trauma, you know, she came back and won the, the next Olympics, which is like, you know an almighty comeback which is so much mental strength you know she went through all this intense mental training coaching and Mm -hmm. um and that's i think just fascinating to observe to sort of witness someone you know so many people can easily get broken by something like that you know they have a horrible setback they're like oh no that's it i'm done and um but to come back fighting that that just shows this incredible spirit that is inspirational for anyone to to witness and um, yeah, so like it, it's this roller coaster of um, drama, really. And um, I just thought, wow, I mean, that just makes for awesome storytelling. And she, I've always said that Lydia's really got, um, she's got two, in terms of filmmaking or crafting a story about her career, she's got sort of like two neat stories. She's got the story of like when she, um, she was a gymnast when she was younger and then she um, was kind of, 
had to quit gymnastics um, for a variety of reasons and that was like her first love that never really she wanted to go to the Olympics doing gymnastics and it never happened so that kind of set this fire this like unfulfilled thing within her and then she got essentially a second chance a second bite of the apple by being able to to come back and and train as an aerial skier Mm -hmm. and she was so determined within I think it was like Within less than two years, she was on the Olympic team and went to the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics. And she was so determined to be there. And she she wasn't just, oh, I'm stoked to be at the Olympics. She was there to win. Like she mm-hmm. was a rookie. And, um, and she came eighth at that Olympics, which is just ridiculous. And she was training so hard, just like, you know, a bull at the gates, just going as hard as possible. And she really banged herself up. She injured herself really badly. And then, you know, she had to kind of recuperate from that. And then there was the, the next, then she came and she reached number one in the world status on the World Cup circuit. And then she had the knee accident in Torino and then she came out and won the Olympics. So that's kind of like one amazing roller coaster story in itself to, the, to this, you know, high point crescendo where she wins the Olympics in 2010. It's like one neat story. But then there's the second story where she returns to the sport as a mum to do this trick that no woman's ever done before. Like she just raises the, the bar again. What do you think her drive was? Do you think her drive was then not to win more so than to prove that the trick could be done? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, it, 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 she had already had that win. She'd already achieved a gold medal. And so she'd already had that notch on the belt as such. Sure. So she'd yeah. tick that box, that bucket list, you know, thing is. And I think it's, um, yeah, it was really about proving to the world that she could do this trick and that's and that sort of takes on this like deeper philosophical meaning um which um you'll you know you can see in the in the documentary in the film but um so that second pursuit is another clear story and i realize you really have to tell both stories to really to illustrate who she is like you need to understand that backstory to know to, to learn what she's doing in the second story this pursuit of sure. this greatness yeah so basically the first act of the film is her first story crammed in in the first act which is pretty chock-a-block and then um and the whole the whole story is wrapped in the, her second story so it you know, the inciting incident at the very beginning is like her saying that she's going to do this huge trick and then you realise... The, the build, build up. up to it. Yeah. What she needs to do to get there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing feat. Mm. Um, and then you don't just stop there though, do you? Like, you like furniture? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Creating stuff. You're a bit of a hands-on person. Yeah. Yeah. What's Jack, going on with Jack your chairs, bro? What's happening with that? <laughs> my chairs. Yeah, I've, I, think I've, I think I've got the chairs out of my system now, which is, which is good. <laughs> done, yeah. done with the armchair. Yeah, and I, um, I kind of – well, I've always loved, you know, making stuff. I'm, I'm more forever making stuff. I've got a, a little work shed down the coast where I go down and, um, and uh, chip away making things. So I kind of – I'm always um, scavenging timber, secondhand timber, recycled stuff to sort of revamp and make into other things. Sure. I'm probably due to get some nicer timber now. I've actually got some um, uh, some blackwood, which uh, I'd, I need to mill actually, and then dry and store. But uh, I, yeah, I've been making some furniture out of um, a whole lot of this, uh, you know, recycled. Uh, I had one. I had some a whole lot of Oregon. This, there was this builder like renovating this house up the road, and he pulled all of these huge Oregon beams out of the bottom of the house. I mean, like Oregon's, you know, it's not the most amazing timber, but it's pretty. It's pretty cool. You can it smells some, good. You can do some good stuff with it. 
yeah, he pulled out all this amazing aged Oregon that was, you know, straight and huge, huge pieces and just put it all in a dumpster, you know, <sighs> and then, but then did the completely tasteless renovation over the top, of course. And um, so I got all this timber out of the dumpster and just made like a whole lot of shelves and sideboards and all sorts of things out of it. And, um, and then uh, my mum was renovating her house down the coast and she had to pull one wall off and there was all this like... Um, beautiful aged uh, Californian redwood um, Crazy. weatherboards and um, which were, you know, dead straight and flat and aged and just beautiful. So uh, I, the only drag is I've got to get the lead paint on one side. I've got to get that off. That's no big deal. <laughs> and then, so then I've got all this beautiful redwood. So I'm kind of like, you know, making bits and pieces out of that. And yeah, I love it. It's really cool. And then the chairs that you mentioned, um, yeah, I got these, um, I think I was, I was in, I was on, in New York, um, a few years ago and um, I went to the um, Crosby Street Hotel in New York which is this really high-end kind of bohemian sort of uh, hotel you know that's kind of like it's it's got the amazing interior design this um, yep. uh, woman named Kit Kemp I think her name is did all the interior design and um, yeah it's it's just it's so cool it's such a great space to be inside everything is just unreal and I walked in and I saw they had this um you know, wing back armchair in the lobby that was uh, reupholstered with this um, Suzani fabric from Uzbekistan, and it was just like I just thought it was awesome. It was just like punk bohemian sort of thing. Sure, yeah, and yeah. I'm like that's so rad. And then uh, I just um, I was actually on the way back to Australia. Just the tickets that we got, I was stuck in LA for a long time, and I just got on um, got on eBay and I looked and there was like these two perfect wingback chairs, like these amazing wingback chairs on eBay for next to nothing. And I'm like, oh, mate, they're excellent. <laughs> I, I do this all the time. I get yeah, myself yeah. in these situations. So then I bought these two wingback chairs and uh, that were covered in this like, you know, puke-coloured, pin, pin, pinstripe, disgusting stuff. But the actual chairs were fantastic. Straight out of Betelgeuse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I ripped all that off and then um, – and I bought, I, and then I think again on eBay, I bought these um, Suzani fabrics from Uzbekistan, which yeah. came wrapped in cloth with like an ink, uh, sorry, a, like wax stamp and all this amazing, you know, wrapping from Uzbekistan. And these Suzani fabrics were incredible. So uh, then I just, yeah, reupholstered them and um, they look pretty wild. And uh, it's been fun, you know. What are you doing with them? Are you just sitting on them? I'm just sitting on them. In fact, one of them, speaking of podcasts, I put because they're a wing back with the little the little wings ah, and near your ear. I put little speakers get out inside the little wings on the side. Jesus Christ! And so you can sit there with your phone and just plug oh. in, and then you just get a little podcast. Are they Bluetooth speakers? They're not Bluetooth. Oh, it's old school. So if you all those people with a new phone that don't have a three and a half mil jack, screwed. You're screwed. You are, you're <laughs> never going to experience these. These amazing. I'm old school. You got to plug in, man. God, don't let Richard Branson sit in them. He'll, he'll get an idea. <laughs> All the virgin flights would be wingback chairs now. <laughs> Recliner wingback chairs. That's crazy. That's amazing. And surfboards, which I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of because I keep, I keep, I have this old SUP board that I found on the side of the road, which I'm gonna, going to, I will, I'm an action guy, cut this thing into a, into a, I've decided it's definitely a twin. It's just, it's a twin fish. That's what I'm doing with it. I've decided. You're gonna, it's going to have to be epoxy, though. Yeah, that's yeah. all right. I'm cool with that, man. Yeah. I'm cool with that. I'm yeah. cool with the fumes. I'm all right. No, there's less fumes with epoxy. Is it less fumes? Yeah. Poly- polyester is more 
polyurethane small fumes. Yeah, polyurethane stinks. But my, it's kind of that's what I'm used to. It's what I've kind of figured it out so far. <clears throat> my dad used to do um, floor sanding. Yep. And so it was pure polyurethane. Yeah. Horrible. Yeah. Stuff. But with the if you're going to do the epoxy, just a little heads up. Just make sure you've got like all the kit because you can mm. you can get um, like a reaction to epoxy. You, like some people um, uh, react really badly to it, like a toxic reaction. Right on. Um, and uh, and then you cannot use epoxy ever again. So once right on, kind yeah, of like everyone has this like sort of inbuilt threshold where like some sometimes they react and sometimes. People can kind of handle it for a while. Yep. But then once you react to epoxy, that's you're, it. You're, you're gone. done. You're done. You can't go near it again. So just make sure you've got like your respirators covered. and yeah, you, okay. co- you just cover everything. Yeah. Um, but you can get now. They have this um, more um, enviro friendly. I don't know if it's like friendlier on you on you or or the environment. <laughs> the environment. Yeah. I don't know, but and that doesn't stink at all apparently. And, um, just because it doesn't stink. I don't trust things that don't stink, though. I've got this, I've got this, you know what I mean? It's like, if you can't smell it, how do you know it's not there? And how do you know it's not damaging to you? You know what I mean? I'm just like, it's like this, this invisible, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I prefer, like, I prefer to have something that I know is dangerous. And if you smell it, okay, it's time to do something about that. But if you can't mm. smell it, it's just like, oh, it's totally fine. I can't smell a thing. Yeah. Plenty of shit out that you can't smell or see yeah. and it's pretty bad for you. Yeah. No, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I've, I've, um, yeah, I've really, I've, I've only made, I've only made two surfboards so far, but I've been really loving the process. Like it's really cool. I've got another three planned. um but yeah i'm really really enjoying it and um yeah there's like you know there's it's a learning process sure yeah yeah. a few little not mistakes but a few little you know farty bits on the first Mm -hmm. um couple of boards that um you know i learned from but they they're still they work they work they float yeah Yeah, they float they surf great they carve good yeah and i'm absolutely loving it yeah they surf really good so uh, yeah, the first board I made was a seven six um, mid length with um, uh, kind of not like a mini male. It's sort of more like a, it's got a you know slightly pointier nose, um, and I put Bonza fins on it that um that are like so you're talking about that Campbell yeah. Brothers seventy style kind of thing. You got pictures of it on your Instagram, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. Check it out there. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, that, and that's awesome. Like it sort of just really grips to the wave and it's really interesting kind of playing with that. And the mid-length thing is really fun because I, I sort of surf a bit of an old school style and I, I like to surf longboards and shortboards. So growing up, it was always like, um, you know, oh, shortboarders are over there and longboarders are over there and, you know, the two worlds separated two worlds, by yeah. hatred. Again, <laughs> you're pigeonholed as a longboarder or a yeah. shortboarder. Yeah. And uh, there's all these shades of grey in between. You know, there's like these, you can do really interesting things. Mm. And uh, I think that there's now this kind of, uh, it's all changed where, the, you know, people are experimenting with all different shapes and sizes and, and materials. Yeah. As well. And fin setups and <clears throat> retro styles mixed with modern styles. And, and that's, that's, to me, that's just awesome because it's just yeah. like a whole, sandbox of playing around and experimenting and and that's as much fun as you know i i think one of the things that i love about um having a crack with surfboards is if something goes wrong it doesn't matter yeah. there's nothing fatal about it you know what i mean there's like the and it's i mean it's 
It is kind of expensive, but it's like I think like maybe bang for bang, like dollar for dollar, you probably came out. You probably come out maybe just under buying a new board or something like that. Yeah, well, but I think a, it's the process. Of, yeah, there's like, there's like the setup of you know tools, which you don't really need that many. But um, I mean, I found that like you know you get a surfboard blank for like 150 bucks for a shortboard, and then maybe best part of 100 bucks worth of resin and fiberglass materials. Yep. So. You know, if you kind of you've already got the other tools, it's only really like two hundred and fifty bucks in you know cost, uh, and then the rest is just labor time. time. It's just in time, but that's enjoyable. You know, it's not like a chore. No, it's not. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and what made you do your first? What made you do your first board? Well, I actually was. Um, I've got a, a nine one McTavish longboard that um, I took down to um, uh, at. In near Anglesey at Point Road night, I was surfing there, and there was this little peak that formed on a high tide right up close near the um, near the uh, boat ramp, which mm-hmm. is weird because no- road night normally breaks on a low tide. And um, I saw these um, longboarders out there surfing one day, and then I went back the next day and surfed with them and had a lot of fun. It's a little wave breaking out there, and they all came in to the car park as it was getting dark, and I was looking at their boards. And I didn't recognise them, and I was like, oh, I don't wonder, wonder what those boards are. And, I asked them, I said, oh, what, what kind of boards are they? You know, I've never seen them before. And they were just like, there's these like young dudes in their 20s. They're like, oh, we made them. And, <laughs> and then I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we just made them in a, in a you know, shed here, you know. I'm like, no shit. And I'm like, like, yeah. I'm like, where do you get the blanks from? They're like, oh, from Geelong. You know, you've got all the materials from there. They like, gave me a bit of a rundown of it. And I was just like, my first reaction was just like, Stunned. why haven't I done this? Yeah. I'm like, Oh. And I was just like, these dudes are like the early 20s, these young punks, and they'd made like, you know, 10 or 20 boards or something. I mean, they mainly long boards, but they'd made some short boards as well. And they were good surfers. And, uh, and they had a little brand going on and everything. I'm like, shit. I'm like, I should really pull my finger out and get on board with this. So, uh, yeah, so I did. And I uh, kind of figured it out thanks to little bit of school of YouTube and um, I did I did actually do a, a small um, short course here in Melbourne there's a place called the surfboard studio where you can go and do these like two-day courses you do one day shaping yeah. and one day glassing which pretty good which I recommend because like it just particularly with the glassing mm-hmm. the shaping is no big deal I don't think for, for me it makes sense but the glassing is an exact science and you don't want to you don't want to like mess that up because the chemicals are dangerous if you don't know what you're doing and um like if you mix the uh, the hardener with the acetone, it'll blow up in your face and you'll be blind. You know, it's just like you got to know what you're doing. Okay, so that's the first episode in the podcast chat with Leo Baker. Um, go back to the podcast list and you will find the second episode, uh, part B. Uh, yeah, hang in there. It's a good one. We start chatting about some really cool stuff and things that he's really, well, we're both really passionate about. So um, yeah, check it out. Thank you for listening.